This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget, you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app, where you can also listen to Redbox, uh, which is all very joined up. Right, coming up on today's episode, all aboard, we are talking about the beaching cut. 60 years ago, train lines across the country were cut to try and save money. It cut off uh, lots of parts of the country from big towns and cities, and had a major impact on uh, the way that we get around. Uh, now, there are lots of campaigns to reopen them, so we will discuss that, including with Pete Waterman, who lost his job shoveling coal into trains for uh, on the railways. Uh, but he went on, of course, to become a huge uh, music impresario, including overseeing the career of Carly Minogue and her song, The Locomotion. You see, it's all joined up. That's uh, so we'll hear from that in just a moment. First, though, it's time for The Columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, normally on a Monday we'd bring you Libby Rachie, but we've got no Rachie. We have got Libby Purvis, though. Good morning, Libby. Morning. And playing the part of Rachel Sylvester, Tom McTague from Unheard. Morning, Tom. Hello, morning. Uh, I'm glad we've got you, Tom, actually, because uh, you know my limited knowledge of football matters. Uh, <laughs> and we're now going to talk about politicians and football. Um, Keir Starmer started it uh, with uh, this, speaking of the high-performance podcast. Being leader of the Labour Party or leader of the opposition is a bit like being the England manager, where everybody can do your job better than you. Everybody's got an opinion on your job that you should be doing. I wouldn't have played him at left back or don't know what that's all about. And my job is very much like this now. Everybody thinks they could do a better job and is not, you know very happy to give advice. And there are ups and downs when things are going well. That sort of goes down a bit, if I'm honest. And then when they're not going so well, the heat is really, really on. And then uh, Rishi Sunak got in on the action uh, when he made a phone call to Harry Kane to congratulate him on becoming England's highest ever goal scorer. Harry, hi. How are you doing? You okay? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm all good, thank you. I'm all good. A little bit, little bit tired still, but <laughs> I can imagine. Just to say, a yeah, massive right, that's congratulations. That's enough of that. That's enough of that. And on and on it went. What is it about politicians and footballers, Tom? Oh, well, it's trying to be the man of the people, isn't it? It's the, uh, you know, the people's game. 
but it just sounds so cringe. I mean, I, I, I feel slightly for Keir Starmer in this regard, because I think he genuinely likes football and is into it and, and cares about it. But Rishi Sunak just sounds like he's desperately trying to sound as if, he, <laughs> if, he's, uh, if he's into soccer, you know. Um, so I don't know, it's, it's a way, Tony Blair did it. Do you remember him doing keepy-ups with, with the football with Kevin Keegan yeah, in the Newcastle headers. top? Didn't you <laughs> headers with Kevin Keegan as well? That's it, that's it, that's it. Um, uh, yeah, there was a, a particularly excruciating moment in that that clip, Libby, where where um, Rishi Sunak said to someone like, um, you must be very pleased with all of the goals or something. <laughs> Sounds like you. <laughs> <laughs> Libby, are you impressed when politicians do football? No, and I'm very pleased that even Tom thinks that it's cringy because I don't see why chaps have to translate everything into football um, just in order to make people love them more because it doesn't work. And of course, it's always, it's always bloke football, isn't it? You know, the kind, you know, that kind that can't win the World Cup. Um, why is Rishi not identifying with Beth Mead? You know, it's like being Serena Wigman. You're a team that actually wins, you know, get, get, get on, get on to that. But I mean, it's, it's froth, isn't it? And it's, it, it is. I'm, I'm so pleased that the Tom who knows about football agrees with me that it's a cringy thing. <laughs> the thing and, is actually in the, um, in the Rishi Sunak clip, he does go on to say, obviously recognising because he, he had some of the uh, lionesses in, and he says to Harry Kane, um, have you seen the lionesses lately? Do you hang out much? As if like... <laughs> yeah, because that's what they do, don't they? The men's team, the women's team, they just hang out. Like, have you seen the rugby boys lately? <laughs> He's a banker. He's a really good, hard-working, well-meaning banker, for God's sake. You know, don't, don't try and be a, a striker. It doesn't work. <laughs> I totally agree. I, I remember actually, Matt, when I was following um, Boris Johnson around the country for a profile I did of him a couple of years ago, um, the, the one thing he was very good at was was sort of playing up to the fact that he was completely out of touch. You know, I remember being with him in Hartlepool and we were on the on the pitch, the, um, the Hartlepool uh, Football Club's ground, and he was almost purposely playing up to how bad he was and, and saying something like his favourite sport was the Eton Wall game and people were sort of loving it and laughing along with it and you, you there is a sort of liberating um, freedom for your quality if, if politicians just say look I am completely out of touch of course I am I'm a banker I'm rich I, I work in Westminster you know but I'm, I'm actually quite good I mean, I suppose it, it maybe it's a sign Libby that the number 10 operation is slightly you know on top of things and instead of, you know, being constantly embroiled in scandals, someone last week had the good sense to just notice, oh, Harry Kane's in the papers. He's, you know, he's become a record goal scorer. Um, let's call him up. Let's let's get on that bandwagon. No, it doesn't. It, it just totally <laughs> doesn't work for me. All, all that stuff, it really doesn't. I, I think people should be who, who they are and, and, you know, say it quite firmly and, um, and, and say, look, I'm, I'm doing a job. And also when they're asked, you know, when they get asked sort of stupid questions about things which are nothing to do with their job, politicians say, I'm too busy to talk about that. What I'm working on is yeah, is yeah, yeah. this. You know, I, I'd like to see a bit more sort of pushback. Whereas instead you get, I mean, it's extraordinary. Some, some spad told him to ring Harry Kane and it just sounded terrible. You know, it, it was it was embarrassing. And I, I, I'm a rishologist. I'm, I'm keen on rishi. A, a rishologist, that's good. That's good. Um, we like that. I may mean rishophile. I've been away on holiday for a couple of days. Sunakatea? Yeah. 
a Sunakatea. I'm, I'm a moderate Sunakatea, and I don't like to see him making a fool of himself. The thing about do you hang out with the lionesses was, was, was problematical, painful. <laughs> but so let's talk about how he's actually getting on the day job at managing his own team then, uh, Tom. Um, we're in this sort of slightly strange situation where the Home Secretary is being accused of being a sock puppet of the Tory right wing. Out on the right wing, that's like a football pun, isn't it? And um, she's she's leading the rebellion against herself. Is that a problem for him? Uh, well, it sounds like it's a problem if your own Home Secretary is also a rebel. I mean, we kind of knew that already, I guess, that it was it was all a bit odd. But I think both of these stories actually suggests to me that we are at least moving on to some level of normality where we're talking about domestic stuff you know we're talking about we do we're doing the kind of things that tony blair used to try and do which is pretend to be a populist a football you know a football fan and you know crack down on um illegal immigration or uh, anti-social behavior and these kind of things these are all domestic issues which after all of the years of uh, Brexit and all and the pandemic and all of those things. Uh, this is a kind feels a bit like a return to normality, which I suppose in some ways is good. I mean, of all the people in Rishi Sunak's cabinet, uh, Libby Suella Balvin is, is the one who sort of sticks out. Is probably belonging more to the Trust Johnson era. Yes, and and I mean she's. I think she is problematical. I think I think the this business of her possibly being in league with the Tory right, you know, in order to get the 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 new law even stronger. Uh, I I just shudder really because this particular the, the law she is proposing I think won't work. It may not pass, but I certainly think it won't work. I think if it was made even sterner and madder, it would work even worse. I just wish they would get down to working on practicalities even if they're slightly unpopular ones like id cards for everybody before you can work or rent and cracking down on the black economy and generally making us less of a great soft jelly of a touch for anybody who wants to come you know who is who is not a refugee but an economic migrant you know these are the things they need to be thinking about and the idea that they're all sort of messing about plotting against each other is really depressing and that's probably why this government will lose the next election um, you know, in spite of, of uh, us uh, Rishatarians or whatever you call us now, <laughs> thinking he's quite good. Uh, the number of people I have talked to who said, you know, I think he's really good, but of course I can never vote Tory now. Mm. You know, the whole situation is just so absurd. And, and, I, and actually, Tom... All I can think is Suella Braverman won't be Home Secretary for much longer, so that's kind of probably all right. And actually, the problem that Rishi Sunak's got, Tom, is that he's got, supposedly, Suella Braverman leading the rebellion from one side, but then he's got troubles on his other wing as well, that both the left and the right of the Tory party are attacking this bill. Yeah, well, quite. And for and both for uh, sort of, you know, I listened to Danny Kruger this morning on the, on the radio. You, you, you can hear himself saying... That oh, I'm not a rebel because the government is is listening very carefully and I'm sort of working with the government. So you're 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 almost getting the admission there of what's really going on. And of course, I think he had the good sense to admit that the goal that the bill has defects on the other side in that it doesn't provide any safe and legal route for people into this country. You know, if we're going to shut shut down. Um, if we're going to just throw people back as soon as they arrive here, but not give anybody any sense of uh, of how to get here safely, if there have been people trafficked or any of these awful things, then uh, that's clearly a, a, a problem with this bill. So 
there are legitimate concerns from the left of the Tory party as well, but I'm, I suspect they're going to be drowned out pretty quickly. Yeah, and it seems as a small truce seems to be agreed by everybody being told they can have a meeting with Suella Barthman. Maybe, she, maybe she's going to get a meeting with Suella Barthman to address her concerns <laughs> as well. Most meta thing ever. Let's bring in Paul Johnson now, Director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies. And to- Paul, you've been looking in your column in the Times today about the state pension age, which is a hot topic on both sides of the channel right now. Uh, yes, indeed. There was a uh, the, the the government has uh, commissioned a report. Has to do it every few years on when it should next increase the state pension age. We know that it's due to go up from sixty six to sixty seven uh, in a couple of years' time. But the plan was that it should then go to sixty eight uh, in about twenty thirty nine. So just about another decade later. But it was uh, apparently been briefed last week that they were going to delay that through to the mid twenty forties. Um, and part of the reason for that is that uh, our life expectancy isn't going up as fast as uh, as fast as forecast. So uh, you can understand it from that point of view, though it is still going up. Um, the cost, of course, of delaying it is quite significant. So we'll spend an extra £60 billion or so on the state pension between the late 2030s and the mid-2040s if we don't increase it at the point that we were intending to. But This is much bigger uh, than what they're proposing in France. In France, they're looking at moving it from 62 to 64. We've already taken it from 65 to 66 for men, from 60 to 66 for women. It's going up to 67 in a couple of years' time. And then we're looking at taking it to 68 at some point in either the late 2030s or the mid-2040s. It's a point, um, Paul, this doesn't necessarily feel inevitable to me. I suppose the, the, the a different policy choice might have been, well, if people are going to be living longer, then we just need to make sure that we've got enough money so that people can retire when we always said they would. Yeah, I mean, you can obviously choose to spend more, uh, more money on that. Now, one of the consequences of increasing the state pension age does make some difference to the number of people who stay in work, which I think the government is quite keen on at the moment. But of course, it means that you have an extra year without that £10,000 or so of state pension. And because what we provide people after they hit state pension age is way more generous than anything you get below state pension age. So remember, over the last 10 years at least, and actually for the more like the last 30 years, we've gradually increased the minimum income that pensioners get, whilst if anything cutting the amount that people over st- under state pension age get. So there's now a chasm in the amount of state support available to people who perhaps can't work um, at 65 relative to 66. And so when we increased the state pension age from 65 to 66, we more than doubled uh, to about a quarter, actually, of all the number of proportion of 65-year-olds who are in poverty. So you really are taking a, you know, a significant risk with the living standards of people who are struggling to work uh, by the time they get to their mid-60s. What's the, the right policy approach on this, uh, Libby? Is it inevitable it just gets push, pushed up and up and up uh, until nobody can claim the state pension because uh, life expectancy has fallen below the, below the level that it starts paying out? <laughs> That's quite an idea, isn't it? I mean, they they did it. The women got shafted at short notice because there was the first rise well advised and then suddenly there was another sharp rise happened to a lot of people. But I think our whole pension system is a load of rubbish half the time. I think the triple lock is nonsense. It is absolute nonsense. And I think there should be an earlier state pension age for people in heavy manual jobs. I really don't mind if people sitting in studios or... (laughs) 
or um, in lawyers' offices, so on, have to work on until they're 70 plus. That's absolutely fine. I'm 73. I still work. I can still do what I do. But there are people in heavy manual jobs should be allowed to retire earlier on a proper state pension. It all needs looking at properly. What do you think, Tom? Do you think any any politician would ever grasp the nettle on this? I think that's a, a wonderful idea Libby just had, partly because I was thinking the same thing <laughs> as she was talking. But it does seem incredibly unfair, you, you, and, and the system does seem broken. You seem to have these, um, you know, free bus passes and the like for people who are uh, you know wealthy and driving around in in you know new bmws in their in their 60s and at the same time you have people who have worked in manual jobs all their lives and who are genuinely struggling and are being forced to um to live on nothing um now because people in our mindset everybody is now living uh, working in a white collar job which of course they're not so yeah no, the system the system stinks and you do have this sort of slight jealousy don't you about the french that oh should we just be a bit more like them and maybe we wouldn't get screwed over quite so much um and how much would all of this cost then uh, paul if we if we took a completely different approach just put some price tags on either holding it where it is or matching benefits like you were saying to um uh in working age benefits to what you get as a pension well leaving it where it is costs something like a uh, initial 10 billion or so wow. a, a year so it's pretty expensive and of course the trade-off here is that most of that money goes to people who don't really need it but um, what we don't do at the moment is support those who do really need it so I think there is a case for finding a way whether it's on the basis of years of education or the kind of job that people have been doing or just looking at their incomes I think there is a case for providing more support uh, for those groups of people who are really struggling in their early 60s and it is very clear there's a much much higher poverty rate among people um, in their early 60s than there is among those um, overstate pension age because we are so much more generous in general to people we deem to be um, we deem to be pensioners so th th there as ever there are trade-offs here um, we, we are we are living quite a long time in retirement um, people in their 50s can expect mm. to have 18 years receiving the state pension. Um, when the pension was introduced, uh, lots and lots of people never made it anywhere near state pension age, and the average amount of receipt was for about nine years. Yeah. Um, and you know, even with these increases, we'll still be um, receiving state pension for longer uh, than people who, who, who are currently in their 70s and 80s. Well, it's fascinating, Paul. It is albeit eye-wateringly expensive. Uh, Paul Johnson there from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Um, just, uh, Tom, you've written today for uh, for Unheard, looking at the fact that King Charles, uh, the King, because Rosie, our regular listener, will be in touch to tell me just to call him the King, uh, obviously due to go to France, and it's pension reform, which has stopped him going. Um, you think maybe that's okay? <laughs> yes. Well, I, I was just reading uh, about... Uh, I was reading a book about the, the the queen and the monarchy and the, and and the commonwealth and i was so struck by the difference between the queen's first trip where she went to 13 different uh, realms of her then sort of empire and commonwealth from australia to new zealand new zealand extraordinary numbers of people turned out to see the queen 6 to 7 million people in australia uh, saw her physically that's 75% of the population it's absolutely extraordinary and you contrast that with her son's first foreign visit which was to a sort of organic wine uh, uh, vi vineyard in in bordeaux and to the port of Hamburg and you sort of it's like a sobering uh, contrast but I think 
it's quite good and i think we it's just quite mature and actually there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing our attempt to use that uh, first queen's um overseas trip to sort of boost our ego after uh, after the loss of india it didn't work it's there's nothing wrong with just accepting that we're a we're a good medium-sized european country and we just need to concentrate ourselves a bit what, what do you think libby I absolutely loved Tom's piece. I thought it was so interesting. <clears throat> what we need to do, we need to send a well-intentioned, kind, thoughtful king as an image of British willingness to help the world and not boss it. I think it's perfect. I think uh, Char and Charles is just the figure, you know, that slightly diffident, well, I, I don't know. Yes, I, I, if, if we can do anything to help, you know. No, I think that's, that's the image I would like Britain to have. Uh, you know, the Empress of India stuff, it's gone, it's over. Tom McTague from Unheard, and of course, Libby Post in The Times. You can read Libby's column in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk and subscribe right now. Coming up, it's Oh, Dr. Beeching. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Ah, yes. It's the familiar sound of the 90s sitcom Oh, Dr. Beeching. You don't need me to tell you. It was the uh, cast of Heidi High, but in a small English railway station. I know that every day during the nearly three decades since this is on our screens, you've been wondering, who on earth is Dr. Beeching? Well, luckily we've got a big thing for you. Sometimes called Britain's most hated civil servant, Dr. Richard Beeching was the chairman of British Railways. And on this day, exactly 60 years ago in 1963, he published a report that would permanently change the landscape of transport in this country. He'd go on to axe over 4,000 miles of track and over 2,000 railway stations under the beaching cuts, and many more followed by the end of the decade. Did he also play a part in the creation of Kylie Minogue? Uh, in a moment, we'll hear from Pete Waterman, steam train enthusiast who worked on the railways, lost his job because of beaching, and went on to make Kylie Minogue a star. 
But before that, uh, let's speak to Charles Loft, author of Last Trains, Dr Beeching and the Death of Rural England, which is out now. Uh, good morning, Charles. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. So take us back then to the uh, 1960, well, 1963, the report came out. What was it that had happened, uh, I suppose, post-war, after the Second World War? Why was the railway suddenly in need of this massive overhaul? Well, I think there were two things. One was, even before the Second World War, once you had buses and lorries, the railway network was facing that challenge. Um, that the train in, in, in quiet rural branch lines couldn't really compete with buses. And uh, similarly, wagon load freight was better, better off on the lorries. And in, by the 1950s, the consequences of that for the railways had become apparent but at the same time there were um other reasons why the railway deficit had had grown out of all proportion um to 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 the social benefit provided by the railways so by 1962 the railways were losing 100 million pounds a year just on operations wow and and at the same time um they needed massive investment the, the bits of the railways that we still needed needed electrification the steam locomotives had to go so on and so forth they needed modern signaling and safety methods in order to afford that investment it was considered necessary to focus it on you know the west coast mainline the east coast mainline the commuter networks the things that railways were needed for bulk freight long distance passenger commuter networks and the rest of the railway was seen, you know, as unnecessary, basically, and, and putting a demand on public spending that couldn't be justified by by the future transport needs. So there was kind of both, both the need to save money, but also the need to target investment on the things that were that were most needed. And presumably, back in the early nineteen sixties, there was no uh, concern about the environment. I mean, these days, we, you know, the, the the push to get people out of cars, out of lorries, and onto the railways. Uh, is in part about reducing carbon emissions and so on, but obviously that wasn't a calculation then. No, absolutely not. I mean, there was a lot of concern about the environment, but they didn't understand about um, carbon emissions and, 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 and the effect on the planet. I mean, during the 1950s, they passed Clean Air Acts precisely because of uh, concern about the environment, but they didn't understand that um, what the implications of, of relying on cars uh, um, in particular Although it has to be said that, um, it, you know, even if a, a, there are certainly examples of lines that were close, say Oxford to Cambridge, which would be really useful to have today, which would be probably well used today, which would make a contribution to um, reducing uh, car use. But a lot of the lines that were closed, Howell to Torrington in, uh, in Devon, it, it was still open today. It wouldn't make any difference to uh, climate change, I'm afraid. So you, do you think that ultimately they were right? Who, who, who was the Prime Minister ultimately who, who took, I mean, he only wrote the report beaching, was then implemented yes. uh, politically. Who was it who then took those uh, decisions? Well, Ernest Marples was the Minister of Transport who, who appointed beaching and, and sort of the early decisions when Harold Macmillan was the Prime Minister and then Alec Douglas Hume. Uh, but it fell to the Labour government of Harold Wilson and and. Tom Fraser and Barbara Castle to implement some of the most controversial parts. Um, they made a big thing about um, not taking forward all the recommendations. Because if, 
the, the beating report of 1963 was the first three and had they implemented the whole thing uh, we'd have a passenger railway now that's about half the size of the one we've actually got so it would have gone much much further and it just proved politically impossible because big money savings came from closing lines like Inverness to Wick or um, long lines in, in, in remote parts of Wales and Scotland uh, and it was politically impossible to close them so by the end of the 1960s that approach was basically dead uh, and attempts to revive it in the 1970s got nowhere because money you could save even from those large-scale closures didn't make that much difference to the overall deficit. Charles Loft there, author of Last Trains, Dr Beeching and the Death of Rural England. We've been talking about 60 years since the Beeching cuts closed railways across the country. One man who remembers them vividly, in fact probably owes his later career uh, to them, is Pete Waterman. We all know him now as music mogul behind hits by Kylie Minogue, Donna Summer, Banana Rama, to name just a few. Just a few. But Pete, you started out on the railways, didn't you? 1962, yeah. Um, and I thought it was a lifelong career. But uh, thank God for the music. I, I, I seem to make more money than I would have done on the railway. <laughs> so explain what you were doing. You were, you were a fireman. I was a fireman, yeah. I joined as, as, as a boiler apprentice. But of course, by 62, the steam engines... They knew that within ten, five years that would be gone, so they transferred me onto the um, onto the shed to be a fireman. And what did that explain? What your your day looked like? What did that involve? Uh, well, we did turns, but I mean, basically, it was just putting coal in the boiler all day long and making sure the water uh, was in the boiler. Uh, I mean, Dickensian. Now you look back. I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong, but you know the conditions were bleak. I mean, I worked at Wolverhampton. I don't think. It had seen any modernisation since Dickens, you know. And Wolverhampton was one of the victims of the beaching cuts. So what was it like back then? You, like you said, you, you'd signed up for it. You know, you loved your trains. You thought that was going to be your, your job for life. And then suddenly along comes beaching and says, no, we don't need all these stations. I think in truth, we all knew at the time um, that something had to give because although certain areas of, of, of the staff were short, firemen we could never get enough firemen because you competed in those days with the, the car factories i mean we were earning they were earning a pound an hour i think we were in about 30p um but you had that job for life mentality but you know we were running services that were empty i mean we weren't silly the, you know everybody traveled between seven and nine o'clock and that was it and um, so did you think that basically at that point the railways were, were just going to be in decline, that we might reach a point where, where nobody travelled by train? Uh, well, I personally didn't, but I think that the, the feeling was that, that railway uh, uh, days were numbered. Because we were talking, you know, 61, 63, we're talking about the car was the all-important thing and the car factories were churning them out and we were yeah. starting to build motorways. The, the, the future didn't look bright for railways, I must admit. And what impact did it have, from your perspective, on the places that then lost their railways, lost those connections to the bigger cities and, and all of that? Well, I, you know, my auntie lived in a place called uh, Claybrook Magna, which is in Leicestershire, and they closed the local station at Ullersort, which meant that we used to go regularly to visit my cousins, which meant that that, that wasn't, wasn't possible anymore. And my mum used to meet my, uh, his, her sister in rugby, uh, every market day again that wasn't possible because to do it by bus there was only two two buses a day it was it was impossible
And so, but it, you didn't lose your love of the steam chains. Uh, you've still got, um, you, you own some still, don't you? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the point was, and, and, and this is the point about the beach thing, this country has never had a strategic railway policy, mm. and it still hasn't to this day. And that's a problem because some rural lines need to lose money, but they are important to the community. Some areas we run trains where we could cut back slightly. There's always that balance. But when a government says the railways must run at a profit, well, that's an impossibility. It will never run at a profit. Uh, no railways in the world run at profits. They're all subsidised. But So when you've got a government that says, we're not going to put any subsidies, you're the man, you've done ICI, now bring the railways into profit. His job was impossible. And his job was impossible because the MPs wouldn't allow him to do it anyway in the end. And, of course, both parties chopped the railway brutally. Um, where do you stand on what, what should happen to them now? There's always been a big debate about should they be nationalised, privatised? You know, we've got this weird sort of mix at the moment. What, what Hybrid. Do, if, if, if you, yeah, if you, were, if you were in charge, they came to you and said, Pete, you know what you're talking about. Um, what would you do? Well, first thing, the first thing is, let's get this straight, the railways are a national asset and they are not privatised. They're run by private companies, but they're still completely governed and run by the DFT. Um, if I have my way, and, and the DFT and some of the civil servants do a fantastic job, but you almost have to be autonomous. Given a policy and say, that's your policy, now make it work. Um, because the hybrid we've got at the moment doesn't work because you've got the East Coast, which is basically a, a, a state-run business, the West Coast, which is not. The East Coast has got a completely different set of rules from the West Coast. So nobody knows where they are, and the staff at the moment are more confused than anybody. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, and, you know, the further away you get from London, the worse the, worse the train seems to get. Now, I was sort of half-joking at the beginning, Pete, but basically without beaching, we wouldn't have got Kylie Minogue. <laughs> well, we wouldn't have got the locomotion. Well, that's an American record, so I, I suppose uh, that was a dance. Um no, I mean, the thing was, I've always travelled by train, personally, since 19... I started in 68, commuting. Um, I've never driven, you know, long distances. To me, the train has always been the most important part of my life. I'm fortunate because I live in the northwest, so we have a great service on the West Coast Main Line and have had since 1968. And did you... I mean, you joke about the locomotion, but was it your your love of trains which meant that you suggested that Cardi Minogue would call that? No, in fact, the opposite. I mean, it was it's one of my favourite songs of all time. The last record I would have done with Kylie would be the locomotion. <laughs> uh, so, so I think they, I think because it was recorded in Australia originally, and I think that um, the guy that did it actually rang me, sort of apologising that he'd recorded my favourite song. Uh, you know, when he sent me the cheque, I didn't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and what about all the all the old lines? Have you ever been involved in a, in a campaign to reopen any of the old beaching lines? Oh, yeah, lots. Yeah. I mean, I'm president of, I think, about six railways. Yeah. Um, and, of course, now we've gone full circle where a certain of our preserved lines, they're looking at the local government, are looking at putting them back uh, as a commuter service. Now, that's a real bone of contention. When they closed the railways, we reopened them with volunteer labour. And now certain... Uh, areas are looking at putting them back and quite rightly by the way but it's a very bitter pill to swallow for people that have given their lives uh, you know and their money to keep us a, a local service open and of course what it means 
to the community. I mean, if we talk about this, look at the Seven Valley. When the Seven Valley had the floods, the economy collapsed, and that's all down to the Seven Valley Railway. Pete, it's really good to speak to you. Uh, thank you so much for, for sharing your, your memories of beaching. Pete Waterman, thanks for joining us sometimes, won't you? My pleasure. Kylie, can you on a Monday morning? Well, uh, Pete Waterman there was talking about campaigns to reopen lines shut by beaching. So let's check in with them, one of them now. Uh, Wendy Thorne of Rail Future is here to tell me about the campaign to reopen the line between Portishead and Bristol. Uh, Wendy, tell us, tell us about tell us about the campaign and why you think you know we've all got cars. Why do we need to reopen these lines? Um, well, Portishead uh, most famously was. Uh, talked about by Dr Liam Fox in Parliament as the most overcrowded cul-de-sac in Britain. <laughs> and, and that's still the case. The A369 is extremely busy at times and there isn't really any resilience in it. So the, the Porter's headline is definitely needed. Um, it was closed in 1964. Um, Porter's Head Railway Group uh, has been campaigning since 2000 for it to be reopened and we're we're, we're nearly there. <laughs> you say you're nearly there. How far off is it to, to, to use to use a terrible pine? I mean, it, it seems like there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's been promises yeah. of it coming, but it's not there yet. <laughs> the promises have been there for many years, I have to admit. But um, now that the DCO, which is the Development Consent Order, has been granted, that was granted in November last year, uh, we're a lot more hopeful that this will go ahead. And trains should be running by late 2026. And what difference will it make? What difference did the closures make? Because my, my slight sense is there were places that were pretty thriving uh, back in the 1960s because they had connections to bigger cities, you know, nearby like Bristol and so on. Do you think Portishead is a less successful place now because of those cuts in the 60s? Certainly lots of businesses came to Portishead when the marina was developed uh, on the expectation that the railway would be coming. Um, and some of those businesses have moved back out of Portishead because of that. Um, and I think it, it isn't just about trying to get people out of Portishead in the mornings. It's also about having people coming into Portishead. It's um, being able to join with the main uh, network of rail so that you could actually go from Portishead to Paris. It, it's not. Wow. It's not a case of just trying to think of. Um, short journeys it, it's it's that it's that whole network that we'd be yeah uh, have available to us so i think um it, it is still very important to porter's head yes so what you've got three more years before you can go from porter's head to paris well there's there's a joke between um the people in the railway uh, campaigning group in porter's head that it's always four years away um <laughs> but it, it now seems to it's now gone down to three. <laughs> That's the first time. But yes, we're, we're still hopeful. Uh, well, good to speak to Wendy there. Well, let's uh, let's try a campaign in a completely different part of the country. Joined now by Jay, Jane Ann Liston uh, from the St Andrews Rail League campaign in Scotland. Hi, Jane. Jane Ann. Hello. Uh, good, good to have you with us. So when was your, your track shut? 1969. Uh, the last train ran on the 4th of January of that year. But it wasn't a beaching cut. 
it wasn't a beaching cut, but it was all, I suppose, no. it was all, all part. Once they, once they started cutting, they obviously got a taste for it. And so you're, you're campaigning now to get it reopened. Um, yes. Uh, how's that campaign going? Well, it's gathering momentum. Uh, it's been going for longer than I would have uh, liked, but um, it, I think people are now realising, especially with the environmental arguments, that we just can't go on with St Andrews being flooded by cars. Um, as you know, it's uh, got the it's the home of golf. It's has it's but it's been a tourist destination even before golf really came on the scene, and it's also the home of the. Uh, oldest university in Scotland, third oldest in the English-speaking world. And because of that, we have a lot of people coming in. We're a destination. So what is needed is a, an environmentally friendly way to bring these people in and out of St Andrews. And it's quite clear that most, for most of them, the bus isn't enough and changing at Lucas is just a nuisance. Uh, Lucas being five to six miles away from St Andrews, and that's the nearest railway station. Um, and so more people just say, to hang with all this, I'll just drive my car. In. And uh, that isn't any good for anybody. And as uh, we know now that it's not good for the environment. Is it realistic that if it was reopened, would it make money? Or is, uh, I suppose, are you making the case that uh, spending public money on railways, subsidising them essentially, because it's good for connectivity, it's probably good for people who can't afford a car, it's good for the environment, it's worth that, that, that money? It's really the question of uh, people are going to come to St Andrews. They're all doing. Uh, I, I'm not sure it would actually bring more people to St Andrews, but it would bring them in a more environmentally friendly way. Um, it's uh, if, if you've ever seen uh, the, the main road into St Andrews is the second busiest um, road in Fife, and it's not even a trunk road. And every time there's a holiday, a Glasgow holiday or an Edinburgh holiday, everyone seems to decide to come to St Andrews for the day. <laughs> And, uh, and the, the place is watching with cars. It's been like that um, for years and it's just getting worse. But now we know that motorists tend not to like to use a bus, but you can get them to switch to a train. So if we could get St Andrews connected to the railway, you would have direct services from Edinburgh to St Andrews and probably from Dundee to St Andrews as well. Then there's a good chance that some people who are at the moment driving a car would say, I'll take the train instead, it'll be faster, it'll be easier, uh, uh, that'll be fine, and it's better for the planet. Um, final question then, Jenan. Um, Wendy mm -hmm. hopes that her line might be open by 2026. Any any date on yours? Yes. Um, I would uh, be looking for, in about eight years' time, uh, seven or eight years' time, let's say 2030, because... I imagine we're going to get blessed with the Open Championship about then. And really, it would be so much better if this time we had the trains to bring people in and out rather than just everyone coming by car. jen -Ann, really good to speak to you. jen -Ann Liston there from the St Andrews Well Leak campaign in Scotland. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.